today's China Research Group session. It's a, an enormous pleasure to have uh, with us two fantastic uh, speakers who are going to be speaking about the uh, new global data set uh, on the, uh, the insights that that's given on the banking on the Belt and Road. This is, a, this is an area of particular interest to me, as many of you will have heard me talking about BRI financing in various different ways. And what's important in today's session is we have from William and Mary College, the aid data team. And what they've done is they've taken uh, effectively research uh, from uh, around the world and they regularly publish data sets and analytical papers on various topics with China being one of their major focuses. They recently report, released a report analyzing, I think I'm right in saying this, 13,427 Chinese development projects worth uh, 843 billion US dollars. Uh, now, those are uh, development projects overseas. This report covers loans, not just from government institutes, but also state-owned enterprises to 165 countries in every region from 2000 to 2017, allowing a comparison to Chinese investment between and pre the uh, pre and post the, the Belt and Road Initiative, the One Belt One Road program, as the Chinese call it. Their work represents the first systematic analysis of the legal terms of China's foreign lending, raising new questions for international creditors and debt relief projects. Look, this is clearly incredibly topical as we're going into uh, various different conversations about development and, of course, about. Uh, green issues and, and COP. And so it's with enormous pleasure that I'm just going to introduce and then hand over to Bradley Parks, who's the Executive Director of Aid Data, and to Amr Malek, who is the Senior Research Scientist at Aid Data. Gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for joining us this afternoon, or this morning for you. Thank you very much for coping with the time zones. And uh, over to you. Thank you very much, Tom. I, um, I really appreciate you taking the time to host us today. Um, I'll just briefly introduce myself. My name is Amar Malik. I'm a senior research scientist at Aid Data. As Tom said, uh, we've been working on this research project for quite a few years, and I'll get us started. And our plan is to spend about 15 minutes uh, first sharing a little bit about who we are and what we do and how we do it. And then we'll get into some of the findings that uh, Brad will, will be sharing. So to... To get us started, you know, uh, the first question you might be wondering uh, about is, you know, who are we and why are we doing this research? So, as you all know, uh, China has become the lender of first resort uh, in, in developing countries uh, for a few years now. But uh, unlike uh, G7 countries, China does not systematically report its development finance activities um, in any uh, in any open and transparent way. So the objective of our research program, which has been going on for close to a decade now, is to facilitate rigorous research uh, and analysis and support evidence-based decision-making by basically providing comprehensive, reliable, and really granular detailed data on Chinese uh, development uh, finance activities. And uh, we think of ourselves more as a platform that provides a basis on which other researchers around the world can build on and do more research. And I think it's critically important for governments uh, in the Western hemisphere, but around the world who are the recipients of this financing to really understand the full picture of what's happening. So just to give you an overview of the scope of our, our project, uh, we basically cover all official sector financial flows from China uh, that align with the OECD's criteria 
for ODA and OOF, which means that we cover grants, uh, technical assistance, loans, export credits, debt forgiveness, and rescheduling. In other words, both aid and lending that the Chinese are doing is all covered. And then it is also systematically reported on OECD's criteria and OECD's definitions. So you can do apples to apples comparisons with uh, what the US, the United Kingdom and other countries are doing. As Tom mentioned, we have uh, thousands of projects uh, worth over $843 billion uh, across all major regions in the world. We cover 165 countries. Uh, the unique feature of our data set, um, which uh, sets us apart from many others that uh, try to do this kind of tracking, is that uh, we have a very comprehensive scope. Uh, we cover uh, all of the sectors uh, that are listed in, in by the OECD uh, in this area. Uh, we cover all low-income, lower-middle-income, and upper-middle-income countries, and we cover financing that comes both from the Chinese government itself and state-owned financial institutions. Now, all of this means that we have information uh, covering more than 5,000 recipients or borrowers uh, and implementation institutions. And we categorize each one of them by the different types, such as government agency, state-owned enterprise, uh, special purpose vehicle, and so on. We do this by reporting on 70 variables, which includes a whole lot of information for each of these 13,427 projects. The big categories of this include uh, the uh, commitment amount, uh, the sector they're in, uh, the status, whether they're completed or not, uh, when did it start, uh, when did implementation start, when did it end, uh, where is the project located, including their precise locations and uh, geospatial information, uh, interest rates, maturity, grace period, and, and so, so on. Um, now, uh, one other thing I wanted to mention was uh, you know, we, we do all of this on the basis of ADATA's tracking underreported financial flows methodology. Uh, you know, you might be thinking, you know, how do we get all of this information and how do we piece it all together? So basically the way we do it is through four big sources or four big chunks of information. And we all, we piece it together mostly from documents that are publicly available, but sometimes you have to make special requests to host governments or international institutions to give us these documents. So first big category is the actual, um, uh, grant agreements uh, that are uh, in government registers and gazettes uh, for grants, loans, credit exports, and so on. Uh, the second is that we extract official records from aid and debt management information systems from host countries. A lot of countries put this on their website or do reporting to institutions like the World Bank. We also uh, scour through uh, details in annual reports that are published by Chinese state-owned banks who are the lenders in this case. Uh, the Chinese embassy put out a lot, lot of information, as does the Chinese uh, uh, government's website. Um, we also um, rely uh, a lot on parliamentary oversight institutions and host countries, which put out a lot of information. And increasingly, we are also using unofficial sources such as media outlets, uh, CSO and geo reports, and so on. So all in all, our data set that uh, Brad is going to discuss findings uh, from uh, now includes over 91,000 sources, uh, on average, we have 6.8 sources per, per project, and we're very proud to say that at least uh, one official source is included in 89% of the projects. Because we are a research uh, entity, uh, research group at uh, William & Mary, uh, a university where students from all over the world come, we are lucky that we are able to use uh, data from uh, different parts of the world in many different languages. 
Besides Chinese and English, we have sources in Spanish, French, Portuguese, Russian, and Arabic as well. And uh, the last thing I'll say is that you can all, uh, uh, if you have in front of your phones or computers, log on to our website, aiddata.org, and uh, download a copy of this uh, data set because all of our data and all of the 91 sources that we've used uh, and all of the, uh, the assumptions that have gone into putting this data set together are all freely available on the web uh, for you to download, engage with, and uh, make your own uh, conclusions and do your own research on them. Um, so with that, uh, I'll stop myself and hand over to Brad, who's going to walk you through some of the key findings. Thanks, Amar. Um, so Amar kind of uh, emphasized that a unique feature of this data set is um, the use of OECD DAC measurement criteria um, and uh, measurement standards. And uh, one of the things that that allows us to do is to see how much China is spending vis-a-vis -vis its peers and competitors. Uh, so one of the big takeaways from our, um, our latest report, Banking on the Belt and Road, is that uh, whereas before uh, BRI was introduced, uh, China and the US were overseas spending rivals. We now see that during the, the BRI era, um, China has eclipsed the US. It's now outspending it on more than a two to one basis. It's outspending the UK on a more than seven to one basis, about 7.6 to one uh, to be precise. So in an average year um, since the BRI was introduced, uh, China is spending about $85 billion on overseas development projects. Um, but the color of that money really matters a lot. So whereas uh, the vast majority of the development finance coming from the US and the UK comes via official development assistance or aid in the strict sense of the term, um, and primarily grants, um, China is kind of forging its own path. So. Um, it maintains a, a, a loan to grant ratio of 31 to one. Um, it's for those of you who are familiar with um, these OECD um, classifications um, to translate that into other official flows or OOF and then um, official development assistance, ODA, it's a, it's a nine to one ratio, no matter how you cut it. Um, you know, China is outspending Western powers with debt rather than with aid. And much of that debt is provided on uh, commercial or close to commercial terms, as opposed to the concessional orientation of Western uh, and multilateral development finance institutions. So just as a point of reference, uh, we find that a typical overseas loan from China has a 4.2% interest, but if you as a developing country were going to borrow from an OECD lender, uh, let's say uh, Germany, France, Japan, you know, you're looking at something closer to a 1% interest rate. The there's also a big difference in the repayment periods. The average repayment period uh, on a, a loan from China is less than 10 years. Um, the loans uh, that are issued by OECD lenders tend to fall somewhere between 20 to 30 years. So you're talking about two times or three times as long of a, 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 ten, a tenor or a maturity length. Um, another uh, finding from our report is that uh, a key characteristic of the Belt and Road era is the approval of mega projects. These are projects that are being financed with loans um, that are worth $500 uh, million or more. So we see 
um, just a, a huge increase in uh, the percentage of, or the sheer number of these, uh, these mega projects being green lit. And with these larger projects has come greater credit risk, right? The um, state-owned lenders in Beijing, um, you know, are, are facing a higher risk of not being repaid. And um, so the, the, the response to that risk that we document in this report is an increase in the use of um, so-called credit enhancements, which are basically repayment safeguards. So any state-owned lender has three primary tools at its disposal um, to recover its debts. Um, one is collateral that can be seized in the event of default. Another is getting your borrower to buy credit insurance from a third party or asking the borrower um, to secure a third party repayment guarantee. Meaning if we can't repay the loan, you know, this other person over here, this other entity is gonna step into the breach um, and make sure that, uh, you know, the bad debt is, is uh, recovered. And so what we find is that um, during the 21st century, there has been a huge increase, a doubling of the percentage of China's overseas lending portfolio that benefits from one of these three repayment safeguards, either collateral or credit insurance or a third party repayment guarantee. It's gone from about 30% of the portfolio to just about 60%. And uh, we'll come back to this, but there's a clear preference among those three safeguards for collateral. And there's a specific reason why that, that's the case, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, another important finding from the study is that uh, these Chinese state-owned lenders have a fundamentally different orientation than some of their peers and competitors. They are yield-maximizing surrogates of the state. The primary focus is on hunting for profitable, revenue-generating projects. And this is because of domestic economic frailties, uh, which we'll, we'll come back to in, in a moment. So uh, one of the uh, areas of the, the Belt and Road Initiative that I think is perhaps um, least well understood is its domestic economic rationale. You know, the way that the BRI is typically characterized is that it's part of some sort of grand strategy, right? A foreign policy strategy to um, build alliances, um, to, you know, sort of uh, reshape the international order in a way that is more Sinocentric. And I think what oftentimes gets lost is that uh, the BRI is a thinly veiled extension and expansion of the going out or going global strategy that was uh, first adopted in 1999. So, you know, China's got a couple of different domestic problems that it is trying to solve through external lending. The first is its domestic industrial input overproduction problem. It produces too much steel and cement, glass and aluminum. Um, and so one of the ways that it's using its overseas lending program is by contractually obligating its overseas borrowers um, to buy those oversupplied industrial inputs when infrastructure projects are being implemented. So if you think of the standard gauge railway that China Exim Bank has financed in uh, Kenya, it requires a massive amount of steel and other oversupplied industrial inputs um, in China. And so the borrower is bound within the four corners of its loan contract to source that those oversupplied inputs um, from Chinese state-owned enterprises that don't have enough domestic customers um, in China. So 
that, that's the first internal problem. The second internal, internal problem is because of recurring trade surpluses, they have a surplus of, of um, dollars and, and euros and other foreign currencies. It's primarily dollars. And so um, they're not getting sufficiently attractive returns on those excess dollars. Also, if they keep those dollars at home, they face uh, may face some uh, macroeconomic stability problems. So they have elected to um, denominate their overseas loans in these foreign currencies and then price those loans um, at or near commercial rates so they can earn um, a more favorable uh, return on those uh, dollars and euros than they would otherwise um, get if they say park those dollars in US treasuries or invested them uh, elsewhere. So I think, you know, when you understand the supply side factors that are kind of influencing the overall size um, and, and scope of the BRI kind of turns things on its head when you think of who is subsidizing whom, right? Typically think of BRI as a subsidy to the developing world, but in, in many ways, uh, developing world is helping China solve uh, pretty thorny um, uh, domestic economic problems that relate to inefficient and uh, bloated state-owned enterprises that have not found a way to get their get their house in order. Another uh, important finding from the study is that um, we see evidence of China pursuing um, what we call a high-risk, high-reward credit allocation strategy. And to understand this strategy, you have to go back to the 2008 global financial crisis. So the single biggest year-on-year -year increase in overseas lending from China occurred between 2008 and 2009. Why did that happen? That happened because China decided after quantitative easing took place in the, in the US that they were not uh, receiving a sufficiently attractive return on their surplus dollars. So the state administration on foreign exchange in China signed a very consequential um, entrust agreement with China Development Bank. What they did was they entrusted their surplus dollars to CDB and they said, um, go get us a better rate of return than what we could otherwise get by having these dollars parked in US treasuries. And that's the moment um, at which uh, CDB is deputized uh, to go and look for these higher rates of return. And at that time, the president of CDB is interviewed by the Financial Times. And he says, look, everybody's telling me to go to Wall Street, that you know now this is the time to uh, buy, buy low and sell high. And he says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going into international commodity markets. So what happened? Commodity prices, international commodity prices plummeted during the 2008 global financial crisis. And China saw an opportunity to kill two birds with one stone. Um, first of all, they realized, look, we can come in and buy up these uh, commodities at record low prices. These are kind of um, undervalued, potentially high return assets. Um, but we also have this surplus of dollars. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna ramp up our overseas lending to resource rich countries like the Equatorial Guineas and Angolas and Venezuelas and Turkmenistans of the world that no one else is lending to or very few Western creditors are lending to. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna denominate those loans in our oversupplied dollars. Um, we're gonna price those loans above our average interest rate. It's gonna be closer to 6%. So we're gonna ask for a king's ransom because we're lending to countries that are generally not considered to be credit worthy. Um, and then what we're gonna do is we're gonna allow these um, borrowers to repay us with the proceeds from their commodity sales. 
So we're, we're going to simultaneously sign two agreements with them, a loan agreement and a commodity sales agreement. And these agreements are going to be linked. And what, the, what will happen is that the commodity providers, when they sell us oil, let's say, um, we're not going to remit dollars to their treasury. There won't be a, a cross-border financial flow. We're going to deposit um, the, the proceeds from those oil sales or commodity sales into an offshore bank account typically in Beijing that is controlled by the lender. And we're gonna require that they maintain a minimum cash balance in that offshore lender controlled bank account. And that's gonna be used for two purposes. It's gonna be used as a source of collateral and it's gonna be used to facilitate repayment of the loan. So we're not gonna take any chances on repayment because the money's not really gonna ever leave um, China. So we, we refer to this as uh, a grab and go source of collateral, despite the kind of media myth of uh, debt, tra debt trap diplomacy that China likes to collateralize on physical assets like a, a port or an electricity grid, we find no evidence for that. We find that they collateralize on cash. They want collateral that they can put in their backpack and walk out the front door with so that they don't ever have to don the doorstep of a judge to try to recover an overdue debt. They're way savvier than what the media is giving them credit for. Um, another uh, section of our report kind of looks at the consequences of all of this uh, overseas lending to developing countries. And what we find is that public debt exposure to China is substantially higher than um, anyone previously understood. There are now 42 low-income and middle-income countries um, that, that hold Chinese debt uh, worth 10% of their GDP or more. In some countries, it's much, much higher than 10%. Some countries, it's as high as 50% of GDP. Um, we also find, uh, we document the, the fall of sovereign debt and the rise of hidden debt. So China faced a major problem in the run-up to BRI. And that problem was they had already issued a huge amount of debt. And so their government borrowers overseas said, look, we can't take more debt on our balance sheets. And so that put Xi Jinping and his uh, colleagues in a difficult position. It put the Chinese state-owned banks in a different position. They had to go search for new borrowers. And so they got creative. And what they decided to do is not lend to central governments, but lend to state-owned enterprises, state-owned banks. They would set up shell companies, these so-called special purpose vehicles or joint ventures, and then lend to them. And so now we see that 70% of China's overseas lending does not go to sovereigns. It's going around sovereigns, which at face value, you might say, so what, right? Why does, why does this matter uh, for folks in the public sector? Well, it actually matters a lot because most of these off-government balance sheet uh, transactions benefit from an explicit or an implicit form of uh, liability protection from the host government. That could come in the form of a sovereign guarantee or it could be um, an implicit form of liability protection. Like if this shell company that we established goes belly up and the company was established uh, to run a public infrastructure asset, well, the host government might have to intervene to repay that overdue debt. Um, I won't go too much into this, but we also document in the report um, that governments are systematically underreporting their uh, debts to the principal international reporting system for public debt, which is the World Bank's debtor reporting system. We estimate that there's $385 billion um, that should be reported to the World Bank's DRS that is not being reported. 
works out to for the average country to be about 5.8% of uh, GDP that's under underreported or I guess more precisely unreported um, debt to official creditors in China. And we find that the problem's getting worse, not better over time. So in a typical year before BRI, um, you know, there would be $13 billion of unreported Chinese debt worldwide. It's now um, soared to $40 billion a year during the BRI era. And we, we kind of think about this hidden, hidden public debt challenge as kind of a phantom menace. And the reason why we use that term phantom menace is because if you, if you put yourself in the shoes of a finance ministry official in a low income or middle income country, the, the challenge is not so much about knowing that there's a specific monetary amount that you're gonna have a debt that you know exists that you're going to have to service. And it's more about not knowing the full monetary value of the debts to China that you may or may not have to service in the future. So if you think about this, but we set up a shell company to um, implement the, the China Laos Railway. We, have an, we the Laotian government, have a 30% ownership stake in that shell company. If the shell company is well-managed, the public infrastructure asset um, generates enough uh, revenue, uh, it's no skin off anyone's back. The loan is paid on time and it's not a public sector liability. But if that railway doesn't generate enough revenue, who's going to repay the lender? Um, it might end up being uh, the Laotian uh, government. It might be uh, that liability may be partially borne by the Chinese government. They don't exactly know how much they're on the hook uh, to, to repay in the event of default. So that is really the nature of the challenge that's kind of rattling uh, credit rating agencies when they look at a country like Laos and say, look, on paper, they owe... 60% of their uh, GDP in public debt, but it might actually be as high as 95% because of these, uh, these hidden uh, public debts. Next slide. Um, and then I'll, I'll just finally say that um, there's a final section of the report that really focuses on implementation of BRI projects. And some of the top line findings from that section of the study First of all, that uh, over a third of the portfolios run into major implementation problems like corruption scandals, labor violations, various environmental problems, and, and public protests. Uh, we find that um, there, these projects, the BRI projects, are also uh, running into major implementation delays. We're seeing an increase in project suspensions and cancellations, more so in the BRI era than in the pre-BRI era. And we're seeing this interesting dynamic that we refer to as BRI buyer's remorse, where host country policymakers that were previously kind of eager to jump on the BRI bandwagon are now starting to create some distance um, from their Chinese uh, patrons because of uh, public concerns about corruption and overpricing that are making close relations with China a political liability, right, for governing elites. Um, you know, looking forward, if we try to uh, think about how Beijing um, might address this rising tide of public antipathy towards BRI projects, you know, we, we foresee three paths that they could take, which are probably not mutually exclusive. Um, you know, one path would be to go to the root of the problem, which is, you know, uh, waning support with the general public in BRI participant countries, try to win them over in the hopes that those efforts will result in the electoral success of pro-Beijing political parties. Um, or they could fall back on a, an old playbook that they've been using for decades, 
um, which is not to try to win over the general public, but to try to curry favor with incumbent leaders, the political leaders in VRI participant countries and bank on their loyalty to Beijing as well as their political survival. And then the last you know, potential path that they could take is the multilateralization path. They've made some noise about this in the, in the past, you know, showing interest in co-financing and co-implementing infrastructure projects with Western powers and multilateral institutions. But to date, it's been more rhetoric than action. Uh, so you know, we're just gonna have to wait and see um, if, if, that, um, if that takes shape. So with that, I think uh, we'll, we'll stop. Well, thank you very much indeed for that extraordinarily detailed presentation. We're, I think we're going to drop the slides and come back to the. There we go. Um, it's very nice to see uh, you back. Thank you very much indeed for that presentation. I have to say I found much that extraordinarily revealing. The first bit that I found pretty staggering uh, was the 70% figure that you quoted, the 70% of Chinese lending to non-sovereigns that is effectively, to one degree or another, sovereign-backed or at least backed by some form of contractual agreement that ties the government in. The second uh, thing that I found completely fascinating was the way in which you described a deliberate strategy uh, to um, take monies that would otherwise have gone into US treasuries and divert them into uh, other areas, um, and other areas deliberately in order to uh, look for returns. Because of course, the third bit, and perhaps the most uh, important element of this that I found fascinating is this is not an aid strategy. This is a profit strategy. And it, uh, I have to say, it, uh, it, it reminded me of, um, uh, it reminded me of many of the other uh, supposed aid projects that we've seen from some countries at various points uh, being masked, but this one rather more successfully. My question, however, is what can we do to make sure that governments around the world price and report this loan, these loans correctly? Because as you say, if they're going into uh, special delivery vehicles, if they're going to uh, different businesses that are so connected to the state entity, how can we, uh, without uh, waiting for you guys to report, uh, make sure that these are properly identified through global rules? I think the way that, uh... The most obvious way is to uh, invest more resources in the World Bank's debtor reporting system. Um, that system has been in place since the early 1950s, and its principal purpose um, is to provide visibility to policymakers um, in international organizations as well as in um, as in developing countries on uh, sovereign uh, debt exposure. Uh, to creditors of all types, not of, this is not even uh, specific to China. And so that uh, system, I think what our report reveals is in, is in need of rehabilitation. Um, there are um, just yawning gaps in the, the, the reporting to this uh, system and the World Bank should be credited that the DRS um, was not made public until just a few years ago. Um, and so, you know, now uh, it's been revealed uh, because of their admirable decision to make the system public that there are real weaknesses. I'll just give you two quick examples. Uh, you know, the government of Montenegro, its single largest repayment liability right now is a $940 million loan from China Exim Bank for um, a highway project. That loan is nowhere to be found in the World Bank's debtor reporting system. 
Aid Data has published the unredacted loan contract. Um, it's publicly available. And so we have a situation where the international reporting system for recording public debt cannot capture the single largest repayment obligation of a sovereign government. And yet a research institution like ours is able to re retrieve and publish um, the loan contract itself. That, um, you know, just uh, shows the, um, the severity of the problem. That, that is a sovereign debt, um, you know, but the problem is also acute with respect to government guaranteed debt. So when, when governments uh, are, are asked to voluntarily disclo disclose their debts to this international reporting system, they're supposed to report two things. They're supposed to report debts that are, um, were directly contracted by the finance ministry or the central government, and then any loans that benefit from an explicit sovereign guarantee. So if a loan is issued to a private entity and the government says, if you go belly up, we're on the hook to repay, repay that debt, the government is supposed to disclose that to the World Bank. Um, and our analysis in this report shows that that is not happening. You know, look no farther than uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina. They, um, you know, guaranteed a, there was a shell company created to implement a $600 million uh, Tuzla thermal power plant project. Um, Aid Data, again, has obtained the, the loan contract in its entirety. We've published it online, and it's not disclosed by the um, by the authorities to the World Bank. This is just an unsustainable and frankly unacceptable state of affairs. And yeah, so I think it's just uh, time to really invest more time and attention and resources into building that system up so that it is uh, credible and useful for all parties. It's a public good, right? Especially as we enter into debt rescheduling situations where kind of the first step to an orderly uh, collective restructuring is um, being transparent about who owes what to whom. <laughs> and you can't do that without uh, this type of information. There are a whole series of questions coming in and I could easily monopolize you for a lot longer, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna start turning to the questions if I may. Uh, Jacob Mardell. Um, so first off, thank you for doing uh, all this research. It's, it's really fantastic. I'm yet to dig into the data, but I've read the report. Um, and um, I just, my question is really on uh, incentives on the host country side for engaging in these deals, for taking these loans from China. I know it's not necessarily captured in the data, but I wonder whether you could um, offer any thoughts on this. Um, and then also, uh, if I may have two questions just about uh, competition with the BRI and um, and the influence China might wield through this financing. Um, what is the the, uh, the US, uh, UK, EU can do um, to uh, compete for influence, um, assuming that we don't want to be financing uh, dodgy projects in uh, in uh, risk areas? Maybe I'll take the first question and Amar, do, would you like to take the second? Yeah. All right. So on the on the first question, um, you know, I, I think it's important to kind of uh, think about this problem over time. So prior to the announcement of uh, the B3W initiative um, that the, the G7 announced in June, prior to the EU's announcement of the Global Gateway Initiative, there just was not very much 
competition in the in the official uh, in the infrastructure financing market, right? So uh, you know, to some extent, if you are a, a developing if you were a developing country looking to um, obtain credit for a big ticket infrastructure project that could not plausibly be financed with grants. Um, you know, you didn't, you had limited choice. There was limited competition in that market. And so uh, many of these borrowers kind of flocked uh, to China um, that also had a need, right, to kind of um, invest these, uh, these surplus uh, dollars and euros. Now that's changing, right? Competition and choice in the infrastructure financing market is, is increasing. So perhaps, um, you know, we'll, we'll see, um, uh, the the demand from the borrower side uh, may evolve <laughs> in the coming years. That's going to be something to keep a very close eye on. But I think the other um, part of this, uh, the, another part of the answer to this question is thinking about creditworthy versus uncreditworthy countries. <laughs> so by and large, you know, after uh, the experience of the highly indebted poor countries initiative in the late 1990s and early 2000s, uh, Western powers kind of um, started to take a very strong interest in helping uh, poor countries get on sustainable, um, get their public finances on sustainable footing. So they wrote down, you know, a lot of uh, overdue debts. And then there was a big shift towards grants or very um, low interest loans. And they avoided extending credit to countries that don't have good credit histories, right? And so I think China um, kind of innovated around uh, the, the global financial crisis when they ramped up lending to these uh, resource rich borrowers like Venezuela and Angola, Russia, um, Equatorial Guinea, those types of countries, many of them could not obtain credit because they have uh, you know, bad credit histories. And so, you know, China found a, a, a tool in this collateralization mechanism, specifically collateralizing on the cash proceeds from the sale of uh, commodity exports as a way that they could still transact with these borrowers that um, other official creditors didn't want to touch with a 10-foot pole while protecting their own interests. Well, namely ensuring that they get repaid on time and with interest. And the, the way that they did that is, uh, you know, by ask, uh, requiring that borrowers, um, you know, maintain this minimum cash balance in the offshore lender controlled bank accounts. That has effectively positioned China as a senior creditor, right? Um, you know, creditor that's more important to repay than other creditors, you know, if, if you encounter a cash crunch. I don't know, Amar, if you want to piggyback on the second question. Yeah, I, I just will add something really quickly on in terms of the G7's response. I think the dollar uh, strategy that would entail a dollar to dollar match, we're trying to compete dollar to for dollar across all the sectors is clearly not a smart strategy. I think the first thing we need to do is to understand where are some of the areas in which there might be competitive advantage. Um, and our data set is, I think, a first attempt in trying to understand it, because now you can look for country to country, sector to sector, where are projects going well? Where are they not going well? Uh, what's missing? What are the missing pieces? And what do we need? So one quick thought that comes to mind is that you know the uh, there is a lot of hardware infrastructure being funded by Chinese entity very quickly, uh, very efficiently apparently, uh, but there are so many other elements uh, uh, for economic growth and development, including capacity building, um, you know, human rights, uh, women's rights, and so on. 
uh, that are not addressed through this kind of uh, hardware spending. So perhaps those are some areas where uh, there is still quite a bit of work to be done uh, in the developing world. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, there's an uh, excellent question from uh, somebody earlier, uh, from Lawrence Jertilika, uh, which I will ask very briefly if I may. How can smaller countries extricate themselves? Is there a mechanism, is there any way in which uh, Western countries and multinational organizations can help to get them out? Clearly, if we're offering lower interest rates and longer terms, it is in their interest to get out. But is there... Are there, how can I put this politely, personal reasons why some leaders may not wish to uh, withdraw themselves? And are there other obstacles to withdrawing? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, the, um, the, the dirty little secret about Chinese lending is that, um, you know, the, the original sin is not in the loan contract. It's in the underlying commercial contract that is financed uh, with the proceeds of the loan. So those commercial contracts are oftentimes uh, intentionally inflated. There's artificial price inflation. And the reason why those co commercial contracts are inflated is because there are collusive deals being struck between Chinese state-owned enterprises and uh, host country politicians or their relatives and allies. So typically the way that this works is you increase the commercial contract by let's say 20% or 30%, and then you split the super profits between the Chinese state-owned enterprise that um, is your counterparty, and then the, the politician who's going to submit the, um, submit the loan application. So China runs a, a demand-driven loan application system. They don't just approve loans on their own. They have to receive a request, typically from the office of the president or the office of the prime minister in the host country. So that is a, a crucial vulnerability, an institutional vulnerability that the head of state or the head of government is the entity submitting the loan applications. And Chinese state-owned state enterprises have figured out how to game the system. They figured out that you can't get a loan application approved unless you already have a commercial contract in place. So if you can inflate the cost of the commercial contract and make it be in the interests of the the person submitting the loan application and the company that will um, implement the project to have that artificially inflated cost, well, now you have kind of a lock-in mechanism. No one has an incentive to reveal that collusive deal. So yeah, that's not easy to unwind. I mean, one thing that I would say is um, in demo democratically elected governments and governments with reasonable uh, institutions of democratic accountability, um, when there are government transitions of power, this is a unique moment um, to sort of rein in some of these excesses. And we're seeing in the BRI buyer's remorse countries um, that many times what happens is a new government comes to power and they immediately go back and review these commercial contracts with an eye towards value for money, asking you know, whether it is in the public's interest to um, continue with the, these projects. So I think when, uh, when new governments come in and they review existing contracts, that's an important time um, you know, uh, for countries that are contemplating the possibility of unwinding uh, uh, relationships that you know, were previously established. Thank you very much indeed. Look, before we go, may I just remind everybody that 
Aid Data have got all their information online and uh, the links will be on the website as well. So please do feel free to go through their data and uh, look more carefully. On the 25th of October, so next Monday at three o'clock, we have uh, another session we're going to have uh, where we're going to be talking about climate change in the run-up to COP. Uh, and I'm delighted that Amber Rudd, who many of you will remember, uh, will be speaking, as will Alex Wang and Isabel uh, Hilton uh, as environmental and China experts. So please do join us Monday, 25th of October at three o'clock for the next session of the China Research Group. And please check out online for everything you heard today. Thank you. <laughs>